BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We interrupt this broadcast before it was history. It was news. It appears as though something has happened in the motor. I said, those are shots. Man on the moon. We copy it down, Eagle. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I'm Bill Curtis. It's been said that breaking news becomes the first draft of history. What's overlooked is how deeply we relied on broadcast journalists who met the adrenalized demands of those moments, often with courage and daring. Broadcast journalism has a simple, sober purpose, to keep the public informed through the best and worst of times. But the consequence of that labor is profound. As legendary newsman Walter Cronkite wrote, the free press is the central nervous system of a democratic society. No true democracy can exist without it. History has borne out that wisdom. But before it was history, it was news. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pilot Mike Smith followed by Krista McAuliffe, teacher in space. Big smiles today. It was cold. We're right around 30, 32 degrees overnight. To be honest, nobody had ever seen ice like this in a launch pad during a launch countdown. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. Challenger, go and throttle up. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Sometimes painful things like this happen. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. I'm Brian Williams. It was named for a Civil War-era naval research vessel. Challenger joined NASA's growing fleet of reusable spacecraft back in July of 1982. After nine successful missions, the most recent concluding on November 6th of 85, NASA had just 10 weeks to prepare Challenger for its next flight. The shuttle program was on a roll, with 15 launches planned for the year, six more than the year before. Spaceflight was becoming routine. It was as if we forgot how dangerous an endeavor it was. As life went on here on Earth, television coverage of the shuttle mission started to dwindle. 
Most Americans had long since lost track of what was up there at any given time and when the next mission was scheduled to blast off. And it becomes somewhat routine, I think, in the public's mind. This is CBS News space analyst Bill Harwood. Back in 1986, he was reporting on the space program for United Press International. I think as a full-time space reporter, I had a different perspective. It's never routine, okay? Anytime you're taking four and a half million pounds of rocket ship and fuel and accelerating it from zero to more than 80 football fields a second uh, in the eight minutes it takes to get to orbit, that is something you have to respect. There's there's not a lot of room for margin and human lives are on the line. Uh, So I never viewed it as routine in any sense. As a matter of fact, before every shuttle flight, Um, You know, I would write long personality profiles of each crew member because I would have the background ready if something bad happened. So the the public might have thought it was routine. I certainly did not, and neither did most of the other full-time space reporters. When I started uh, covering space shuttles, we would go down 30 days before the launch to have a briefing with the, uh, the astronauts. Tony Clark reported on the space program for CNN would get a chance to talk to each individual astronaut and the uh, flight commander, learn about the uh, the launch. And then we would come down uh, for the launch. We would be at the Johnson Space Center throughout the, the mission and then go back once the, uh, the shuttle had landed. And that continued for each one of the shuttle flights. But by the time of the Challenger flight, things had changed. The day of the uh, shuttle launch in January, we were in Andrews, Texas, covering an oil story. It wasn't felt necessary for us to be in uh, at the Johnson Space Center. We had uh, a staff at the uh, Kennedy Space Center for the launch. We had a correspondent who specialized in space shuttle coverage in Atlanta. All of NASA's video is fed down from satellite. And so uh, CNN felt that uh, they could cover it without us being actually at mission control. Yes, a- absolutely. The the media interest, uh, because they had many other things to deal with, uh, you know, we began to look routine to them. Stephen Nesbitt was a NASA public affairs officer. And on that day, he was the voice of mission control. We'd go out there and, you know, with a few delays here and there because of weather or technical issues or whatever, we'd eventually get a launch off. And then, uh, yeah, everything would come back. Everything would be fine. We'd go on to the next one. And yes, it did begin to look routine, especially when the missions were doing things like launching satellites and stuff. So that didn't have much public appeal. So uh, when we got to um, late 1985 and 86, while there was a pretty big media crowd always at the launch site at, in Florida at the Kennedy Space Center, in Houston, we had maybe, uh, you know, half a dozen people registered to be there during the course of the mission so that they could cover what was going on. Uh, that changed tremendously, obviously, on uh, January 28th. To keep public interest of space travel alive, NASA started the Teacher in Space program. The hope here was to select a gifted teacher who would communicate with students while in orbit. NASA received over 11,000 applications. The field was narrowed to 114, two from each U.S. state and territory, as well as the Department of Defense, the Department of State Overseas Schools, 
and the Bureau of Indian Affairs schools. Ten finalists were then taken to Houston's Johnson Space Center for medical examinations, interviews, briefings, with the final choice being made by NASA Administrator James Beggs. He selected a high school social studies teacher from New Hampshire's Concord High School named Krista McAuliffe. The teacher, as a spaceflight participant, as the program originally was called, brought a tremendous amount of interest to it. And so we saw a lot more focus of both, uh, not just in the media, but other public uh, interest as well for this flight. And my feeling of this was anything that helps share the spaceflight experience with the public was a good thing. It's not just about getting money from Congress or, you know, justifying your existence and keeping your job. It's really about sharing this experience with the people who paid for it. So an activity like the Teacher in Space showed that regular people could become astronauts and go into space. Now, we had already had a number of non-NASA astronaut people fly. Uh, there had been the mission specialist group or payload specialist, actually, who were from other countries. We had had uh, a member of Congress and a senator. Uh, both had flown just previously. We were seeing a lot more people who are not professional astronauts begin to fly, and that, that always brought some increased level of media interest and public interest. But teacher in space was something special. She came back to engage her students and include them and tell them about her training. Beth O'Connell was the bureau coordinator for the NBC News Boston Bureau. There was just so much excitement around the fact that she was so thrilled to be taking this on at 37 years old. You know, there are pictures of her out jogging and training and, um, you know, it's just, it, it was an exciting, it was an exciting story. I got a chance to step aside with Krista McAuliffe's dad and he was so proud of his daughter. The thing I remember him saying is that if her mother, if his wife had been younger, she would have been doing that as well because it was that important to them. There were a lot of things going on that week. For one thing, a lot of the senior science writers were in Pasadena, California because the Voyager 2 spacecraft was completing its flyby of Uranus. And so my boss, for example, Al Rossiter, the science editor at UPI, he was in California. He normally would have been at the Cape covering a launch. And that was kind of true across the board. And so uh, because of all of those issues, there were not nearly as many reporters and photographers there for that launch as there had been for, say, the 10th launch or the 12th launch. Uh, the interest had definitely died down in the, in the national media to some extent. Our mission was go do a piece uh, on the, uh, the school kids all coming to watch the launch, et cetera, et cetera. John Zarello was CNN's Miami bureau chief assigned to cover the launches at nearby Kennedy Space Center. And the night before the launch, another hard freeze was predicted uh, in Flint. Remember, Florida at that time was still the, the center of the orange industry, you know, in, in this country. So we're here, we're already in Cape Canaveral waiting on the launch, which was now scheduled for the morning of the 28th. So we tell the network, look, you know, we'll just go out. 
We'll go into the orange groves overnight. We'll file a piece first thing in the morning with an audio track and the video, feed it up to you guys. So you'll have a piece on what the growers were doing, you know, during this, uh, in the overnight hours to protect the orange crop. And then we'll kind of mosey our way back over to the Space Center and and do the launch. Uh, So we file the story. We head back over to the Space Center. Um, We have a little trailer there, and it was cold. Right around 30, 32 degrees overnight. And then it was about, I guess, 34, 35 degrees, uh, you know, in the morning there. The temperature was so cold. They were, I believe, they were right at or below um, the minimum standard, you know, launch commit criteria. There was ice forming on the vehicle. And we were basically all in the mode of, well, we're hanging out, we're waiting, we're waiting for them to to scrub. We're waiting for them to scrub and reschedule for the next day or the day after. That was the mentality of just about everybody there who had covered any shuttles in the past uh, uh, was thinking it's just not happening today. As the sun came up, there was quite a bit of ice on the launch pad. And to be honest, nobody had ever seen ice like this at a launch pad during a launch countdown. And the assumption was, well, they must know what they're doing. On the morning of the 28th, I arrived about two hours before launch. Got on console, plug in, listen to the audio loops, mostly uh, the communication channel that the flight director and all the lead flight controllers talked on, where they were talking about whatever was happening, all the systems, how they were working. At that time... There was no script. I know that some people have used scripts since then, but I always thought that was a dangerous practice because sometimes things go differently than what's on the script and you got to be ready to move. Um, So I I had simply a list of ascent events, it was called, and these are the, the times when things are going to happen, like when the solid rockets have finished burning at, at about two minutes and five seconds and they drop away. Uh, When you've got enough energy that you can make it to an abort site, across the Atlantic uh, with with one engine out or two engines out or whatever. There are all of these events that happen, and that's in rapid fire in an eight-and-a-half-minute launch sequence. So you're reviewing that. You're listening to anything that might be coming up that might be a threat to the launch. While everything looked normal on this crystal-clear launch day, the freezing temperatures did give Steve Nesbitt, the voice of mission control, reason to pause. The weather was a concern. It was very unusual for a launch day. I'd certainly never seen a launch that was uh, that cold. Um, the effect of it was uh, heightened, I think, by the all of the ice that was on the pad. Uh, during the night, they had intentionally left on uh, some of the, the pipes to, to drip like you might do in your home if you're expecting a freeze. And that ended up with a tremendous deposit of ice and icicles all over the launch pad area. Uh, they decided that they weren't worried about those because that was, um, you know, the, they would fall in a direction that would not impact the space shuttle. I heard no um, discussion about concern over the solid rocket boosters, just something that didn't surface in the discussions that I was hearing. So I, I was thinking that maybe, and I was kind of hoping we wouldn't launch that day because uh, I was getting a cold and was having difficulty uh, talking. So I thought, well, you know, this is probably good. We'll wave off another day and go. Another day, it'll be warmer, and I'll maybe I'll have my voice back, or somebody can take over for me. So anyway, but that's what we're doing, sitting there for a couple of hours, waiting, listening, watching, uh, and seeing if we're really going to uh, uh, to get down to uh, launch. 
I called our, we had an affiliate in New Hampshire to make sure they were going to be at the high school because that was one of the possibilities would be for us to be at the high school where they had assembled the students in the cafeteria and essentially classrooms, all the entire building had televisions as did classrooms across America. Uh, Once we knew that they were going to be there, I made arrangements because Krista McAuliffe had already scheduled that she was going to teach a class in space and she was calling it the ultimate field trip. So I I made arrangements with the school for us to be able to come back in a couple of days when she was doing that. At uh, Kennedy Space Center, uh, they have a public affairs staff also, and their commentators do countdown commentary. And what they're doing is all the way from when the fir- uh, well before the crew gets up, they start a couple of hours before launch going live with their commentary. This is shuttle uh, launch control at T minus two hours, 28 minutes and counting. They're talking about the crew having breakfast and getting into their suits. Here comes the uh, 51L flight crew boarding the elevator uh, for the second time in two days, ready to depart the ONC building for the launch pad. And getting out and walking out and going out to the launch pad. And they'll ride down the uh, three floors to the main level where they will uh, exit the ONC building. And here comes the flight crew now. Commander Dick Scobie, followed by Mission Specialist uh, G. Russell, Ron McNair, and, uh, Pilot Mike Smith, followed by Krista McCollum, teacher in space, uh, Ellison Onizuka, and payload specialist Greg Jarvis. Big smiles today, confidently getting into the van. Getting on the spacecraft, and, you know, we have cameras in the white room up there, the closeout room, and, and the closeout crew. They're going to go out to that pad and... Uh, Attempt a second try, second second try at launch today. It'll take a few minutes for the astronaut van to uh, get to the pad. So they're describing all of those things that are going on. They're talking about the weather conditions. And then they're uh, keeping us up to date on the holds because there are built-in holds um, while different things happen. The the, uh, loading of propellants, um, anything that comes up. That's what they're doing. And we're just sitting quietly in Houston waiting for launch. Uh, they will be the voice that you hear doing the 10, 9, 8, 7, etc. Lift off, and then they'll say, and the shuttle has cleared the tower. Then I would immediately pick up. We will continue with our story in just a moment. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm Brian Williams. After four previous postponements, twice due to rescheduling of the preceding mission and once each for bad weather and a faulty hatch, NASA didn't feel the frigid temperature was reason enough to halt the final countdown. 
And that surprised CNN's John Zarella and his fellow journalists. We're like, wow, okay, here we go. So, you know, as they worked through the countdown, uh, what was a common thing that the media people, we all would go out to the where the countdown clock was, which was at the end of what's a turn basin there. You know, maybe it's 100 yards or so from what was called the press mound where we all were down a little bit of a hill across a grassy area so it was a it was an area where we would all kind of go stand by the edge of the water right by the giant uh, countdown clock and we waited for the liftoff t minus eight seven six we have main engine start four three two one and liftoff the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. The Challenger lifted off at 11.38 that morning and hurtled majestically into the clear blue sky. They never got old. The earth would shake. You would get that, you know, you would see the, you know, ignition and the firing, these massive solid rocket boosters and these three main engines. Bill Harwood shares in the excitement of the launch. You know, they fire up those three main engines about eight seconds before launch. They throttle up, computers make sure they're working right, and then they fire those two solid rocket boosters and the shuttle takes off. And then, you know, you you hear that rumbling sound, and then it, this massive shock wave would ripple across from the launch pad to where we were at the press mound. There's no sound at first. You see these big billowing clouds of exhaust shooting out, and you see the shuttle start taking off. And then the sound hits you and the shockwave. Uh, it was powerful enough to, it would vibrate your shirt on your chest when you're standing outside or even in some cases shake books off your bookshelf in our office. Every car alarm in the parking lot would start going off. I mean, that's how massive the shockwave was that, that you would feel. It's, a, it's an experience I always tell people, you know, you, you could not appreciate the shuttle on television. You really had to be there. And if you were, you'd never forget it. Physical control responsibility for the shuttle shifted to mission control in Houston from Florida when the solids lit. For commentary purposes, uh, as soon as they said, and the shuttle has cleared the tower, then I would immediately pick up. Got roll program confirmed. Challenger now heading downrange. So you're sitting there in Houston in a concrete building with no windows inside a room within the core of that with no windows, thousand miles away from the launch site, sitting there waiting quietly, and you go from being quiet to talking 90 miles an hour in a split second. And you have to keep that up for eight and a half minutes while you go through there calling, making all the, uh, the calls. Engines beginning throttling down now at 94%. Normal throttles uh, for most of the flight, 104%. And then the other challenge is don't step on any of the audio from the astronauts and mission control talking to each other. So you've got all of these things you have to weave in there, you know, velocity this and altitude this and downrange distance this. We'll throttle down to uh, 65% shortly. So after a while, you learn the cadence of it, and then you're able to pause for a moment while the crew is talking with mission control. Three engines uh, running normally, three good fuel cells, three good APUs. And the vehicle's ascending, and you're just watching it because it's such 
you know, an incredible machine and an incredible show and the force and the power. But as far as thinking of myself or focused on, I mean, I knew what I had to do. I had to write a piece. We'd get the post-launch news conference. We'd show, we'd get a little bit of natural sound of the countdown, you know, and the NASA people saying, you know, challengers cleared the tower with the first teacher in space, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and I'd put the piece together and that would be it. Then we'd drive home to Miami, but we were going to watch the ascent first. I was in the middle of going through my set of things that I would say, velocity this, altitude this, downrange distance, such and such. Velocity 2,257 feet per second. Altitude 4.3 nautical miles, downrange distance 3 nautical miles. I'd comment on the status of the systems that I was watching, three good APUs, three good fuel cells, engines at 104% or coming up to 104%, whatever they were at that moment. Engines throttling up, three engines now at 104%. The first minute of the flight looked perfectly normal, and like I said, it was an absolutely spectacularly clear day. You could see the, the churning clouds of exhaust, and you knew the shuttle was behind there, and it would come out, you know, shortly because of its trajectory. And then, 73 seconds into the flight, horror struck in full view of all who watched. So we heard go for throttle up. Challenger, go and throttle up. Challenger, go and throttle up. And we were all looking up. And now the NASA television picture that was being beamed back to CNN, you could see the fireball on television. The flight surgeon said, what was that? And I, so I glanced over as I was still speaking. And um, I, at that point, the only thing that was there was I saw the two of the two solid rocket boosters going off on their own, clearly that doesn't happen under normal circumstances. Uh, those things stay attached until they have finished burning up all of their fuel. And that happens at two minutes and five seconds. And I remember, like I said, the first minute or so of flight looked perfectly normal. I wasn't expecting anything. When all of a sudden, that exhaust cloud from the booster seemed to expand. It billowed outward a little bit. And I had this, this sensation of fragments, you know, pieces of something, you know, flying out of the cloud. I couldn't tell what it was. It, it wasn't like big or major, but it was unusual. We saw a massive white cloud that just engulfed the entire vehicle. And then we saw what looked like fireworks shooting out from behind the cloud. And at that point, we're all looking at each other saying, all right, well, this is not right. And then moments after that, and you know, I glanced up at the television and it was absolutely clear something terrible had happened. So I finished the few words that I still had to say. One minute, 15 seconds, velocity 2,900 feet per second, altitude nine nautical miles, downrange distance seven nautical miles. And I thought, what the heck is happening here? You know, something is really bad. And I looked at the data and beside all the numbers, there was a little S, which means static data. There's nothing new coming in. And I thought, well, you know, I've got to say something, but what can I say? Uh, and nobody knew anything. You, you could tell in, that no one had a clue as to what had just happened. So I, I had to uh, sort of establish that, you know, we were still live on the air. We were still saying something. And so I said, My controller's here looking very carefully at the situation. 
Obviously a major malfunction. Obviously a major malfunction. What seems today like such a towering understatement, in the moment it was all mission control could say, because in the moment that was all we knew, as the long television lenses remained frozen on the picture of white smoke and streamers of debris falling away and into the Atlantic below. Here again is John Zarella. And at that point, it all kind of kicked in, and everybody down there started running back up across the field, up towards the press dome, and... As I was making my way up there, my cameraman was probably about halfway between the countdown clock and the press dome. So I went to Steve and he's still looking through his eyepiece, just fixed on the vehicle. And I said, Steve, what happened? And he looked away from the eyepiece and he said, it blew up. And I was just, I mean, the shivers that I still get today when I recount that moment. Uh, That's how I felt that day. As an experienced spaceflight reporter, Bill Harwood struggled to comprehend what he had just witnessed. I didn't know if the shuttle might have come off and was flying or trying to glide to a runway. Didn't know, but I knew it was terribly serious. And I remember telling the editor, oh my God, I think the shuttle just exploded. Let me dictate. The way it worked in the wire service, you would you would post one paragraph. It was called a bulletin precede. And it would say something to the effect of the space shuttle Challenger apparently exploded, you know, about a minute after takeoff, period. The fate of the crew was unknown, period. Send it. Uh, and then dictate another graph, you know, another couple of paragraphs to say when it took off and what it looked like. And then it just rolled on from there. There was sort of stunned silence in mission control. I mean, there would have been silence anyway, but you could tell people were stunned. Of course, I'm listening to anything that the other operators, the flight controllers are reporting to the flight director. The flight director is basically like the orchestra leader, keeping the team going. And we had someone say, we've lost all downlinks. We have no downlink. That meant that uh, there was a break in the communications from the shuttle. Uh, so instead of all of this torrent of information coming in on how every system on the, on the spacecraft was doing, everything was just frozen. There was no information coming in. I was going to be reporting whatever had to be said. Um, this was not a time to be trying to put the best face on something. We needed to put out the information as it happened. And I listened uh, to the flight director loop and heard... Um, the flight dynamics officer who was in contact with the range safety people at the launch site. They're the, they're the ones uh, who monitor where that spacecraft was heading and you know what it's, whether it was you know in safe flight or not. And they reported to the flight dynamics officer that uh, the vehicle, the spacecraft, the shuttle system had exploded. That was the term that they used Uh, Within seconds of hearing that, I repeated the same thing on the broadcast. We have a report uh, relayed through the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. We are now looking at uh, all the contingency operations and waiting uh, word from any recovery uh, forces in the downrange field. We were in the bureau and we had a bank of televisions. And uh, we looked up and CNN was on. 
and we saw it happen. I think we were in utter disbelief, as we all were. I mean, it was, that's not supposed to happen. And our entire bureau got in our two crude cars and drove immediately to Concord, New Hampshire. Like the rest of the news media at Kennedy Space Center, John Zarella struggled with the lack of information. I called into the network immediately, got on the air with Tom Mintier, and just told them as best I could what the situation was on the ground here. There wasn't really much I could tell them. They had seen it. CNN's John Zarella is at the Kennedy Space Center on the live line now. John, you could, I'm sure, see it from your vantage point, even nine miles down. Uh, Describe the scene there. Tom, it was just uh, a situation where everything looked fine. And then all of a sudden, it, it, it looked like a giant fireworks display overhead. The weather and the sky being so clear, you could, of course, see it for miles and miles. And at first, no one was quite sure what we had seen. Everyone was just sort of standing around as if things were going normally. But, of course, uh, when I saw that fireworks, uh, sort of a fireworks display, I said, this is not right. It's, it's, it's not something that I had ever seen before. My conversation, quite honestly, wasn't that illuminating other than to paint a picture of what it looked like at Kennedy Space Center with the bedlam going on. But as far as any kind of hard information or facts or anything, that wasn't going to happen. Nobody knew what had happened other than the vehicle had exploded. No one knew anything yet, but the television networks knew they had to get their anchors in their chairs and on the air to describe whatever it was we had just witnessed. Dan Rather rushed into the CBS News headquarters and without makeup or his contact lenses, as it turned out, he went immediately to the so-called Flash Studio. The Space Shuttle Challenger Apparently, moments after takeoff in a hard breeze from Florida, something went wrong. The vehicle reportedly has exploded. Now, what we're going to do is show you... And after broadcasting the the initial bulletin, he remained on the air for over five hours. For the three network anchors, the day's live coverage never stopped and morphed right into the evening news broadcasts. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. It is the worst disaster in the history of the American space program, and President Reagan has declared a week of mourning for the seven astronauts. Good evening, tonight from Washington, D.C. It was a nightmare, a cruel, shocking end to what everyone expected to be another triumph for the space shuttle program. ABC's Peter Jennings and NBC's Tom Brokaw were both in Washington preparing for that evening's planned State of the Union address. Still on assignment in West Texas, CNN's Tony Clark received an urgent call to get to Mission Control in Houston. Our assignments desk called and said, you've got to get back here quickly. The space shuttle has exploded. And that was so unreal to me. Uh, because we had had so many successful launches. Uh, But to get back, we had an hour's drive to Midland, then fly back to Dallas, and then fly to Houston. And so it took us a while to to get there. Uh, I think all of us were just in, uh, in shock at that point. And the thing that kept going through my mind was Ron McNair, one of the mission specialists on the uh, the flight had told me at well, the briefing he was so eager to get up into space and put on his Walkman and listen to tunes as he watched the world go by. 
And I thought, that is such a human feeling. And now he's gone with the other astronauts. I remained there for some hours um, to try and, you know, periodically give a status of anything we knew. We will report uh, more as we have information available. We are now looking at uh, all the contingency operations and waiting uh, word from any recovery uh, forces in the downrange field. I believe I was the last person to leave. Um, It was probably mid-afternoon, early to mid-afternoon, sometime when I left. There was a guard downstairs checking to make sure that folks weren't carrying off reams of data that would be needed for analysis afterwards. It's a couple of hundred yards walk back over to the back entrance to my building, which was the public affairs building. Um, And I went in the back door there because I knew out front that was going to be where the newsroom is, going to be pandemonium and people, you know, demanding answers and things like that. And if I went over there, having just been on console in that position, I would have just been mobbed by whoever was there. And, you know, it would have been kind of a circus. So I went in the back door, went into my office down the hall and remained there for a while. My boss, a little bit later, uh, invited me to go to his office where I would kind of be out of the way. And then we we planned a press conference that that would be uh, where I would be up there along with the flight uh, director, Jay Green. That's basically how, how we handled that. NASA is now ready to make a briefing. Judge Moore, director of the Johnson Space Center at Cape Canaveral, Florida. And I address you here this afternoon. At 11.40 a.m. this morning, space program experienced a national tragedy with the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger approximately a minute and a half after launch from here at the Kennedy Space Center. I regret that I have to report that based on very preliminary searches of the ocean where the Challenger impacted this morning, these searches have not revealed any evidence that the crew of Challenger survived. All early indications in the Launch Control Center the Kennedy Space Center have indicated that the launch was normal up to approximately 11.40 a.m. this morning, about a minute or so into the flight. The networks went wall to wall, hours of live coverage without commercial breaks. And because of the limited amount of footage available, they all showed the same horrible images over and over. The explosion itself shown frame by frame. Then there was the happier video of McAuliffe and the other astronauts, but that was juxtaposed by the horrified reaction shot of McAuliffe's parents in the viewing stands and McAuliffe's high school students in Concord, New Hampshire, as they watched and slowly realized what had happened. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union, but the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. That evening, the task of talking the nation through the tragedy fell to President Ronald Reagan at the White House. He was supposed to be delivering the State of the Union address that night at the Capitol, but it was canceled. The task of crafting his speech to a shocked nation fell to a then relatively unknown White House speechwriter named Peggy Noonan, who would later describe her challenge in writing such a speech. She said, quote, It was aimed at those who were eight years old and those who were 18 
and those who were 80 without patronizing anybody. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. 19 years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes, Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Ellison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista Mikulov. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear as you do the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. It belongs to the brave. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. It was a sense of disbelief, and at the same time, you always knew this could happen. It was this mixture of, you didn't ever think it would, but you knew it could, and it had. And you knew it was going to have huge implications for the whole space program, and, and, you, and you could not get the astronauts out of your mind. I can remember one point a few minutes after this happened, when we had filed that initial story, uh, and I can remember kind of stop typing and looking out the window. The exhaust cloud is still hanging there, drifting away. I, I teared up. All of a sudden, I was on the verge of just losing it, you know? And I, I remember I had to slap my knees and snap out of it because I knew I had to write and all of that. But it was, a, you know, it was a gut-wrenching moment. There's no other way to describe it. Meanwhile, Beth O'Connell and the rest of the traveling NBC News Boston Bureau had arrived in Krista McAuliffe's grief-stricken hometown of Concord, New Hampshire. Concord would be considered a city, but especially that day and those days and that week, it was like a small, small New England town. And thousands of people came out for a vigil that night and for subsequent nights and it was January frigid New Hampshire cold and there was a lot of snow on the ground it was really freezing and uh, the candlelight vigil uh, was just a sight to behold so I think you know there are events that we never forget collectively as a nation and personal, I think, because we we did feel a connection 
to the teacher in space that there was a local connection that she was the the human touch if you will she was just so young and so excited and so genuine and smiling and she looked so thrilled when she was leaving and her parents the corrigans look like neighbors of mine um and you know just watching them be completely thrilled for 72 seconds and then baffled and then just the disbelief on their faces just reflected everything that we were all thinking Investigators would later suggest that the failure of a seal known as an O-ring, which had degraded because of the dangerously cold temperatures at the Cape, had led to the fiery destruction of the shuttle. As Neil Armstrong's first step on the moon epitomized the 1960s spirit of limitless possibilities, the televised pictures of the Challenger exploding showing the death of all those souls on board had the opposite effect on our country. There would now be decreasing appetite for risk-taking and adventurism in space after we had all witnessed what can go wrong. Challenger taught everyone who covers space that this is a, is a dangerous machine by definition, and people are risking their lives on it. Um, so, yeah, I think it affected how everybody covered it and everybody thought about it. I covered a total of 75 space shuttle launches, right up to the very, very last one, the last launch of Atlantis. And in every single launch that I covered after Challenger, I would hold my breath until they hit go for throttle up and until those boosters came off the sides of that vehicle because you knew that there was absolutely nothing that could save the crew if there was an accident or something went wrong before those boosters came off that vehicle. So I held my breath every single launch. I'm Brian Williams. For more information on this episode, please visit our website at weinterruptthisbroadcast.org. Now please listen to this important message from Bill Curtis about the great work of the Broadcasters Foundation of America. Every day, broadcasters bring us the information and entertainment that enriches our lives and often saves lives. It's not only the person on air. It's the producers, engineers, management, sales, marketers, camera operators, and more. For more than 70 years... The Broadcasters Foundation of America, a 501c3 charity, has been a safety net, providing financial assistance to broadcasters and their families in acute need from a debilitating illness, tragic accident, or unthinkable catastrophe. Whether a retired broadcaster who can't afford life-saving medications, a family struggling to make ends meet after a crippling accident or severe damage from a hurricane, to the home of a broadcaster in need. The Broadcasters Foundation has always been there to help those in our industry who need it most. Now more than ever, the Broadcasters Foundation is in need of your donations to continue its charitable mission. Please consider a donation today at broadcastersfoundation.org. That's broadcastersfoundation.org. On behalf of all our broadcasters, in all areas of our industry, 
We thank you.